Father, we do come before you to adore you, to lavish affection upon you, to worship you, to worship you in spirit and in truth, to worship you from our hearts. I pray that this morning you will just capture us again with your, your character, your attributes displayed in your body, not only in the incarnate body of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in your body, the church. I pray that you will inform us and equip us and prepare us, but I pray above all that we'll never lose sight of your grace and your mercy, your kindness, multiple kindnesses to us, how that you have delivered us and redeemed us and forgiven us and made us your own. You are great and greatly to be praised. We praise you this morning. It is in your name I pray. Amen. My dad often would say at the beginning of a service, if you haven't told the Lord today that you love him, now's a good time. It's always good for us to thank God and to express our love and appreciation for Him. I'm glad you're here this morning. It's good for us to open our scriptures together. And I want to just begin by, we're gonna, we will be looking, by the way, at the scripture that Scott read earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. We will also be looking at Acts chapter, 1, uh, chapter 6. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But uh, I, uh, in, the, uh, in the tradition that I was raised in, it was commonly accepted that preachers' kids were ill-behaved. If you want to look for the troubled kids, the mean kids, the kids that are always kind of on the edge, you look for the preachers' kids. And there was only one classification of children that were worse. Anybody know what they are? The deacon's kids, that's right. (laughs) And so I don't know if you are familiar with any of those mindsets or any of those thoughts. Today I was talking to Kendra as we were preparing and getting ready for this weekend, but also for this service. And one of the things that I was talking about is, uh, in many ways, this sermon is a lesson. lesson. Now, Scripture is always a lesson, amen? Scripture is always the imparting of information. Scripture is God's eternal truth that has been written down, given to us, preserved for us, recorded for us, that we are to take in and believe and receive, that we are to allow it to do its work in our heart. It's Scripture. It's a living word. And we allow it to teach us and inform us and change our minds, change our beliefs. And when our beliefs are changed, our behavior is changed. And we want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we do that through the taking in of God's Word, both as a lesson and as exhortation. You know the difference. A lesson is, here is the Word, thus saith the Lord. Here is the Word of the Lord for all people, for all time. The exhortation is, now obey the Word of the Lord. Now let's walk in obedience to the Word of the Lord. And this morning... We're going to begin seeking to understand what deacons are. What comes to mind when you think of a deacon? Is there any particular image that comes to mind? I don't know if any of you are are college football fans, but Wake Forest has a team called the Demon Deacons. You guys familiar with those guys? When I first came to Pendleton Street Baptist Church, we had a deacon named Pearson Price who is a graduate of Wake Forest University, and when we first met, he said, I am a demon deacon. And I got a little worried. (laughs) It's not often that deacons introduce themselves to you as a demon deacon. And I said, are you identifying with Wake Forest University, or are you talking about your role as a deacon? He said, sometimes sometimes both. Sometimes both. Uh, we, We do... When, when I think about deacons, I think, you know, there's kind of a caricature of deacons. They're the leaders in the church. They're the guys who just kind of are the most upright and the most forthright, kind of the rule keepers of the church. In many, case, in many cases, deacons have served as elders in the church. 
when Dr. Uh, Dean Crane was the pastor of Pendleton Street Baptist Church, and Pendleton Street Baptist Church really began to increase in numbers, some people came to him and said, we only have seven deacons. I think we need more. And Dr. Crane said, in the book of Acts, the first church had seven deacons. What's good enough for them is good enough for us. And so for many years, decades, Pendleton Street Baptist Church had senior pastor and seven deacons. And that was the structure. Now, those deacons, I will tell you honestly, just looking through the minutes, they served as elders. They served the elder role in the church rather than specifically a diaconate role in the church. But that was their identity, the office that they held. And then Dr. Malcolm Rivers became the pastor. And Dr. Malcolm, Dr. Rivers was a, a very scholarly man, very erudite. He looked out across the congregation, some 2,000 members on the rolls and uh, in attendance, and he looked at seven deacons, and he said, there's no prohibition from having more. Seven won't do, let's have 21. And so they tripled the number of deacons at Pendleton Street Baptist Church, 21 deacons serving in that role. And good and godly men who were serving in the role and responsibility of deacons. I don't know, again, this is just a brief church history lesson in case you... You don't know. The deacons had specific roles and specific assignments. They are in that responsibility, in that era of, of this church, the life of this congregation, they, they served kind of a deliberative and guidance role of the church. We need to focus on making sure the facilities are in good shape. We need to focus on making sure the finances are in good shape. We need to focus make sure the educational portion of the church is in good shape. And they, they carried out that function in the life of the church. And then, of course, we had Dr. Oh, well, we had... Uh, Following him, we had Jack Causey. Jack maintained 21 deacons. And then, of course, we had Bill West. And then we had uh, Larry Jones. And I don't know if you guys were here when Larry was the pastor, but when Larry was here, he came back and said, you know, our deacons are really a deliberative body, but they're not supposed to be, from what I understand in Scripture. They're supposed to be a serving body, enabling and equipping serving in the church. And so we changed at that point, And we maintained the number of 21 but we changed the focus, and we established the deacon family ministry plan. We established that deacons are ministers and, and servants to, to function in the life of, of a church. Uh, when I became the pastor here, we had uh, 33 committees. Do you all remember that? Our bylaws were 29 pages long. Do you all remember that? What, now, let me just ask, was any of that wrong? And I, I'm going to say no. When the Bible talks about polity, which is a great word, isn't it? Polity. When the Bible talks about church governance, how a church makes decisions, I will tell you it's not specific. It does not say everybody has to be kind of Presbyterian with uh, specific teaching elders and ruling elders and then a diaconate that fulfills this role, or Methodist with the ecclesiological structure where you have bishops and overseers and then you come down to honestly in today's structure administrators and down then down to pastors priests that level and then uh, specific committees in the church there's a lot of flexibility there's a lot of latitude that congregations are allowed to have in how they make decisions but where the bible speaks we need to be careful that we pay attention to it would you agree we need to be careful that we follow the principles laid out in Scripture. One of the earliest Baptist confessions was the Philadelphia Baptist Confession of 1742. And this is what they wrote. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church that are common to human actions and societies. They are to be ordered 
by the light of nature and Christian prudence and wisdom according to the general rules of the Word of God, which are always to be observed. So that means there's a lot of flexibility. Where the Bible speaks, we need to make sure that we're careful to obey. Where the Bible is silent, we're to use our wisdom following the principles of God's Word. And so today we want to talk about how important it is that a church be ordered, that it be structured, how we believe God is leading this congregation to be structured. And isn't that a great topic for a Sunday morning? I know some of you just sitting there with your pencils ready to go. I do want to give you a little bit of a warning. It's important. I'm going to tell you it's important. It matters. How a church makes decisions matters. We have done our Membership Matters class now for a number of years. In our early days when we were first starting, the number one question that we would get from people who were visiting, who wanted to learn more about the church was, how does this church make decisions? Is it a congregationally led church? Is it a church that votes on everything? Is it a diaconate-led church? Is it a church that has a board that, that kind of serve as a managing body of the church? Is it a pastor-led church where the pastor makes all the decisions and, and makes all the calls and everybody has to fall in line with what he says? How does the church make decisions? I will tell you that I don't believe those have to stand in contradiction to one another or contradistinction to one another. I believe that there is a role for the pastor or the elders of the church. I believe there is a role for the diaconate of the church. I believe there is a role for the congregation of the church. And they all come together under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to make an organized and functioning structure. Susan and I went to see my mom and dad yesterday. Got to spend a little bit of time with them. And I'll just be honest, make this a matter of prayer. You guys can pray for my dad. He's, he has congestive heart failure and he wasn't having a good day. It's not been a good week. Uh, did you know that the heart pumps 2,000 or more gallons of blood through your blood vessels a day? Did you know that if you took every blood vessel and every capillary in your body and you put them end to end, you could circle the earth three times plus and have some left over? All of that to simply say our God who created everything that exists is a God of order. When... Paul was writing to the church at Corinth. It was a church that had become disordered. It is a church that had become disordered in multiple ways. And one of the ways that it had become disordered was in how they were conducting worship services. And evidently, it would have been one of those that would have been fun to attend, but probably not very edifying. Because people were just jumping up and speaking in a, in a tongue that nobody else knew, or people were doing this, or people were doing that. And Paul said, the strangers are going to come in, and they're not going to be edified. They're not going to be worshiping your God or know more about your God by the way that you're behaving. And so he basically tells them, and this is a Marty Price interpretation, paraphrase, if you will, of a passage of Scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, by the way. I would encourage you to look it up. But he tells them, calm down, sit down, be quiet. God is a God of order. And when you speak, speak so that you can be understood. And if it can't be understood, you need to stand, have somebody else stand up then and explain it so that it's understood. Because what people need to know is the truth of God clearly conveyed to the hearts and minds of people. And in your order, God will be glorified. Isn't that great? I just think that's great. And I think what applies to the service, and, and it, it didn't tell them that they needed to be liturgical. I don't, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not talking about a specific style of music or a specific style of worship. I like amens. Amen? Okay, let's do that again. I like amens. Amen? All right, so... That's just to warm you up in case you hear something uh, this morning. But I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about that God has a God of structure and order. And so churches 
under the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the Spirit and the teaching of God's Word need to be organized in structure. And so there is an office in the church called the deacon. And this morning, we're going to start with a simple understanding of what deacon means. I think it's important that we do that. Scott read earlier 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we see the word capital D, deacon, used four times in that passage of Scripture. It kicks off and it says deacons likewise. Now likewise is an important word there. Because he just got through describing the role and responsibility of overseers. We'll come in our next sermon on this topic. By the way, this sermon may span two weeks, so don't get your hopes up. But in our next sermon on this topic, we're going to go up and look at the first portion of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Where he talks about elders, where he talks about pastors, where he talks about overseers. And he's talking about one office. Multiple people, but one office. And so we'll come back to that next week. But we have a deacons likewise. Deacons in the same manner. Deacons in the same way. Just as this whole first office we've talked about, now we're talking about another office. Deacons. And I want to start by just looking at the word deacon. In the New Testament, there are three forms of this word that are used a lot. Diakonos, diakonia, diakoneo. You will sometimes hear me talk about the diaconate. Sound familiar? The diaconate means the body that's identified as deacons, deacons in the life of a church. It is interpreted, it's over a hundred times in the New Testament, over a hundred times. It is most often interpreted servant or service or the verb to serve. Servant, service, or to serve. So noun, personal, noun, proper, uh, improper, common, and then verb, uh, diaconate. It means service. It's sometimes interpreted in another way. Sometimes it's interpreted ministry or minister. There's a place in Acts chapter 29 where they're talking about collecting an offering for the victims of a family. And in that verse, it's, it's interpreted relief because the service that they're providing in that context is relief for those who are suffering from famine. There's another passage in Acts earlier where it's talking about finances. And it's used to, to, to talk about the service of finance, the way that finances are used to... to, to uh, administer the, uh, the resources on behalf of God's family, and administer is how it's used there. But typically, diakonos was a word that was used all over the place. And its original root meaning were those who served tables. What would we call that today? A waiter, a waitress, a server, a server at a restaurant, that sort of thing. By the way, those are my favorite people. My favorite people are the ones who bring me food. And so I, I, I love, and we need to actually display Christ when we have those opportunities when someone is serving us in that way. Let me give you some examples of how it was used in that way. You remember the first miracle that Jesus ever did? He turned the water into, at the marriage of Canaan. He turned water into wine at the marriage of Canaan. You remember, he was invited to this wedding. He was invited to this marriage feast. And these marriage feasts would last for days. And that the person, the family who was doing this feast, ran out of wine. And Mary came to Jesus and said, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus is like, what do you want me to do about it? My time has not yet come. And yet, he went ahead and took the responsibility. And there were those who were serving, who were servants. 
And he had them go take jars, fill them up with water, bring them back. When the master tasted the water, it had become wine. And look at verse 9 in that passage. It's on the screen, John chapter 2. When the master of the feast, this is kind of like the, the host, the maitre d', he tasted the water, now become wine. He didn't know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, why have you saved the best for last? <laughs> Normally we start with the best and then we get to the worst. You saved the best for last. And he's talking about the quality, of course, of, of what Christ does. He doesn't do anything second right, second hand. It's a good indication of that. But the word servants there, those who serve the food, that's the word diakonos. They deaconed the food. They deaconed the wine. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, Peter's mother-in-law got sick? You remember? Jesus had been working miracles. They were ministering there. Peter's mother-in-law had gotten sick. Uh, and just looking at these two verses, uh, Jesus arose, he left the synagogue, he went into Simon, that's Simon Peter's house, and now Simon's mother-in-law was ill. She had a very high fever. And they went to Jesus and they said, Jesus, can, can you heal her? They appealed to him on her behalf. And Jesus stood over her. He rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she, began, she rose, and she began to deacon them. How did she deacon them? She deaconed them by serving them food. Sit down, rest. No, this is what she does. Sometimes it's translated servant or minister. Even the angels serve. The angels deacon. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone deacons me, this is diakonos, all right? If anyone diakonizes me, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my diakonoi, my servant, be also. If anyone serves me, diakonite, then the Father will honor him. I want you to know that the word we use as deacon is in common usage, and it's throughout the New Testament. And it's used in a multiple way. The point here that we need to grasp, especially as we look at ordering the church, or a church that has a structure, a structure to function, as we find in 1 Timothy, is that servanthood is not limited to a particular office. Every member serves. Every member deeks. <laughs> Every member deacons. Every member is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, an active part of his body. In a few minutes, hopefully, when we touch on the qualifications of the deacon, the amazing thing about them is that the qualifications are not amazing. Did you hear the scripture that Scott read earlier? The amazing thing about those qualifications is that they're not amazing. They are the qualifications that are expected of every follower of Christ who is seeking Him, following Him, walking in obedience to His command. It's important that we grasp that. No place is this clearer than the 1 Corinthians 12, a passage that speaks about spiritual gifts when it says, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 5. It says there are varieties of service. He's already said that we have services from the Holy Spirit that are given to us. They're given to us for the common good. And he says there are varieties of service, diakonion, but the same Lord. And so... Every member has a service to render. Every member is a servant. Now, there are a couple of places where a deacon is transliterated rather than translated. We'll get back to that in just a moment. But it's important that we grasp Romans chapter 12 identifies that there are some who are 
specifically gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve. In Romans chapter 12, where again he's going down a list of the gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit, he talks about a variety of differing gifts. And one of them is if service. What is the word there? Anybody know? Can you guess? All right, that's it. It's the same word, diakonos. If, if your gift is to serve, is serving, is diakonos, then you're faithful in your serving. To the one who teaches, he's faithful in his teaching. And he goes through the passage of Scripture like that. Only in two places in the Scripture is the word diakonos transliterated rather than interpreted. Now, that's clear, right? Transliterated rather than interpreted. To interpret a word from one language to another, you look at the word in its original meaning and its original context in the original language. You take the meaning and you separate it from the letters. You clothe it in another word or concept that conveys the same meaning in the target language. And so diakonos means to serve. Most of the time when you read it in English, you read it to serve. But there are some places where diakonos is not a small d, it's a capital D. From its context, you can tell that this is more than just simply the concept of service or a command to serve. This is talking about a diakonos, a specific role, a specific function. So you go from the general usage to the specific usage. And so the translators, rather than using servant with a capital S, they just took the letters from diakonos, changed them to English letters, and they made the word deacon. They created a new word. Deacon. This is the specific role and function of a deacon. It's used in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul is sending a letter to the church at Philippi. And here's how he starts that. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants, which, by the way, is the word deacon, of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with two groups of people, overseers, pastors, elders, and deacons, a specific role, class, office in the life of the church. And the other place that we see this is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So here's the question. What do deacons do? And you all know the answer. If you don't know the answer by now, I have failed miserably in the first part of this service. What do deacons do? Deacons serve. By definition, in concept uh, of the word, in context, there's no way you can get around the fact that every member serves, but there is an office where the whole definition of the role is service. What was missing, by the way? What was missing from 1 Timothy chapter 3? The concept of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the qualification. Have you guys ever looked at a job description, a job position for a job you're, you're applying for? When you do, there's typically a place on their qualifications. We need you to have this degree. We need to have this many years of experience. We need you to know this. We need you to be able to do this and demonstrate this. We need qualifications list. But what follows that? Job duties, responsibilities. These are the tasks that this job is to complete. What is missing in 1 Timothy chapter 3? You got the qualifications section. What is the duty section? It's not in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That doesn't mean it's not in Scripture, but we're going to look at what I believe were kind of the incipient deacons, the beginning deacons, the precursor to deacons, before the office of deacon was established in the life of the local church by looking at something that happened in 
the church at Jerusalem shortly after it happened. So open or turn with me to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we get a specific account of something that's taking place that we need to be aware of. In Acts chapter 6, the church is established in Jerusalem. There are people there who are traditional Jews. They've not identified with any culture other than Jewish culture. But there's also all these Jews who had been in the diaspora and had been exposed to uh, Greek culture, and they had adopted the Greek language and many Greek practices. The Bible calls them Hellenist, which, by the way, is the word for Greek, in case you're wondering. So it's just the, the Greek culturally influenced Jews and the traditionalist Jews. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the church is growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. That's the Hellenists and the Hebrews. That's the Greek-influenced and the traditionalists. <coughs> anyway, the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Greek widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. By the way, this is the daily distribution of food. You need to know that the Jews were really big on Alm Sunday. As a matter of fact, every week, the Jews and the Jewish Christians would deploy a ministry that was involved a great number of people in the life of the church in which they would have baskets of food and they would visit those who needed food, particularly widows, those who had no one to provide for them or for their means. And they would evaluate the condition of the household and they would give them seven days' worth of food. If they had seven days' worth of food, they would bless them and move to the next house. But they would give seven days worth of food and then they had an emergency alms ministry if you will where if there was a, a, a an emergency need they had a, a means to respond the first one was simply called the basket in hebrew the second was called the platter in hebrew i love that but that's like you have a need right now here's some food right now so the jews get because of old testament teaching because of practice they get hospitality ministry they get care congregational care ministry and so this carried over into the early church Praise the Lord, because it reflects the character of Christ and the call upon Christ. And so that's the distribution that they were talking about. Some of these people were getting food. Some of them were not getting food. And so the twelve, who are the twelve? The apostles. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Let's have a family meeting. And said, it is not right that we, the twelve, the apostles should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute. Seven men who you know by reputation and by your own experience are spiritually mature. Who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. They've got to circumnavigate a very conflicted situation, something that can be really disruptive to the life and testimony of the church. And so they need to be wise whom we, who the twelve, will appoint to this duty, this task, this role, this responsibility. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, which, by the way, is a Hellenistic name, it's a Greek name, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, also a Greek name, and Procurus, also a Greek name, and Nicanor, also a Greek name, and Timon, also a Greek name, 
and Parmenas, also a Greek name, and Nicholas, also a Greek name, a proselyte of Antioch. Get that? Who were complaining? Who had a legitimate beef? The Greek Jews, the Greek Christians. Who did they appoint godly men representing the underrepresented group? Important to grasp. We'll get to that later as we get deeper into study. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And so we, this is the situation that we're facing. And so are these men actually deacons? They're not called deacons. There's no office of deacon that has been established yet. Do they serve as a precursor for deacons? I believe absolutely, yes. These are godly men called to serve a specific task and a specific function. Deacons serve. Okay, what do they do? No job description found in 1 Timothy 3. Let's see how this role kind of began and how it evolved. And so we see the task. The first thing I want to point out is that they were called to care for the physical needs of the church. There was a physical need in the church. They were called. What did, what did the apostles say? It's not good for us to, to uh, leave the ministry of the word to, to do what? To serve tables. They were called to serve tables. They were called to meet physical needs of the church. They said it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. They had a duty and a task to care for the members of the congregation in practical ways. Caring for people, genuinely displaying the love of Christ, serves their physical well-being. Caring for people serves their spiritual well-being as they see in their example. They see the example of these leaders following Christ and loving them well. And it serves as a witness to the world who needs to see the difference that Christ makes in people's lives. By this shall all men know you are my disciples, Jesus said, if you have love one for another. Love always acts. Love works. Historically, deacons have been put in place to serve the financial matters of the church, or to care for the homebound, or to care for the facilities, or to coordinate different tasks, ministry tasks, service tasks, ministry, same word, that is, that is necessary for the functioning of the church. It is important to note that uh, seven men over the food and distribution, how many members did they have? Thousands, potentially tens of thousands. Did these seven guys deliver all the food? What do you think? Did these seven guys deliver all the food? No. Back to our first point that wasn't actually a point on the outline, though you can write it down. Every minister is a servant of Christ. Every, minister, every member, every believer is engaged in ministry. These guys were there to be an example and to provide leadership and structure and direction. Did they stay in this role and make it become a deacon? I don't think so. Stephen was the preacher that we see that's stoned and just a little bit later. These guys never show up again as an office. What they do is they give us a model for how the church is to meet the physical needs of the congregation while the elders, pastors, overseers are ministering the word to the body. Does that make sense? So they serve, and they serve the physical needs of the, of the congregation. The second thing that we see in this text, which I think is real important, is they work for the unity of the body. By the way, I'm just going to give you a warning. This is this sermon, part A. We're going to finish this sermon next week. So point two will be our outline for next week. But they work for the unity of the body. What was it that caused them to be picked out in the first place? A potential conflict. A complaint. And I want to tell you, that the complainers were not condemned in this passage of Scripture. 
Nowhere do we have any sense in this passage of Scripture that the apostles said, well, them Hellenist Jews, they're just whining, they're complaining, they ought to just shut their mouth and be glad they get what they get. It doesn't happen. Now, a complaining attitude, a grumbling attitude, a murmuring attitude is a sin before God. Amen? Just own it. Affirm it. But when there is a legitimate concern... It needs to be communicated. It needs to be shared. What would have happened if this complaint had not made its way to the apostles? You guys know what murmuring and mumbling and complaining can do in the life of a church? That's why the Bible calls it out so many times. And it does not say, don't convey legitimate concerns. Don't convey, don't not convey. Wow, that's a terrible double negative. It doesn't say that you shouldn't communicate legitimate failures, legitimate faults, legitimate needs that are not being addressed. What it does say is that you don't politicize it. You don't round up people. You don't allow it to fester and just spread and grow. You take it to where it needs to be addressed and addressed biblically and addressed responsibly. And because this complaint came, the apostles were like, How do we address this complaint? Because it's a legitimate complaint. It's a legitimate concern. There's a ministry here that is not being completed appropriately in a way that glorifies God. So what do we do? Our job is preaching and teaching and ministering the Word of God, seeing the Word of God bring lost men from darkness to light, bring saved men conformed to the image of God as they get further established on truth, helping people walk in wisdom in their expression. What do we do? We identify people who are already serving. They're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We identify people who have demonstrated character, spiritual maturity, wisdom, experience. And we put them in a position where they serve both as a model and as an administrator of specific areas of ministry for the local body. And in so doing, deacons work for the unity of the body. Their service was to head off disunity and to resolve conflict in the church. Again, this is every Christian's role to work for unity in the body. Every Christian's role. And so, when you talk about actually acknowledging someone in a role, responsibility, office, or position in the church, here's something that Mark Deaver says in his uh, book on church leadership. He says, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with your church, who have a grumbling or critical attitude. The deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitude. Quite the opposite. Instead, the deacon should be the mufflers or shock absorbers. They are uh, encouragers in the body, in the life of the church. Deacons serve in specific roles on behalf of the whole. And that's going to take us to this third point, which is as far as we're going to get this morning. They need to be people, men and women, who support the ministry of the Word. They need to recognize the value of the proclamation of the Word of God. There is no prohibition, by the way, from deacons being able to teach. As a matter of fact, many times deacons should be teaching. But the main difference in the qualifications between an elder and an overseer and a deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you know what the main difference is? There is no prerequisite for the ability to teach for the deacon. The prerequisite is the ability to serve in a Christian character. 
Right? The role of elder, one of the primary roles of elder is to teach, or at least be able to teach. And not every teacher should be a preacher. Not every elder is a preacher. Some of them are teachers as they serve in the leadership role in the church. But that's in a couple of weeks. We won't worry about that right now. Here's what I want you to understand. We're talking about godly men and women who display the character of Christ, and they have allowed the Word of God to permeate their lives, to transform their thinking, to help them learn how to behave and how to glorify God. They have a concept not only of who Jesus is, but what Jesus has accomplished in the cross, on the cross. And they are used to work toward the unity of the body as they meet the physical needs of the church, undergirded by and encouraging of the ministry of the Word of God in the life of a church. How about that? Pretty good, right? See, I believe that God has a very good plan. We see it again and again and again in Scripture. And we want, want to walk in obedience to these principles. And so... That gives you some idea of what deacons do and some specific ways in which they serve. The next question is who can be a deacon? And so we're going to come back next week and talk about who can be a deacon. We want to address the question, can men and women be deacons? Do you have to be old to be an elder? Isn't that a good question? Now that I'm old, it's not as important as it used to be. Uh, but we want to ask questions. What are the qualifications? What are the things that you look for as you identify people to serve in certain roles? And how do we determine specifically what those roles are going to be in the life of our church? I do want to just kind of pause here. Just put an ellipsis or to be continued. We're picking up here next week. But I think it's a great time for us to refocus our attention on what it means to serve and to be served. A lot of times we think about authoritarian roles and responsibility and fame, looking for a position of honor. A lot of times we want to lord it over people when we get in some sort of area of responsibility, and we need to reflect the character of Christ. Jesus looked at his disciples at a pretty tense time, and he said, listen, me, the Son of Man. By the way, that was his favorite term for himself, by the way. The Son of Man, reflecting back to Daniel chapter 7, identifying with his people. He said, I, the Son of Man, I did not come to be served. What? You didn't come to be served? No. I didn't come to be served. What did he come to do? I came to serve. How? And to give my life as a ransom for many. Thank you.